Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to us on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And today, we have the greatest Spanish chef, I would say, working in America, but I think the greatest Spanish chef working in the world, because he is not only a chef, he's a missionary. He can excite you about anything he's excited about, but Spanish cuisine is his passion. Jose Andres was chosen in 2011 as the outstanding chef of the James Beard Foundation. That meant he was numero uno chef in, in the United States for 2011. In 2009, he was named one of GQ's Men of the Year. His restaurants have garnered stars and um, four stars from the LA Times for ba- the Bazaar in LA. Uh, and last but not least, I mean, there, there's pages of awards that this chef has won. But in uh, 2012, he was named by Time magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. We're going to get into that. But first, I want to say, hola, Jose. How are you? Very happy to be here with you, Dorothy. Very happy. Okay, but we're going to get into your why you're the most influential person, you know, this year for time. But first, I want to ask you, what was little Jose like? Where did you grow up in Spain? What were you like when you were seven years old? Well, I've been an immigrant all my life. I was born in a beautiful uh, region called Asturias in the northern part of Spain. Very green, very rainy uh, mountains next to the sea at the same time. Beautiful place to grow up. But when I was six, my mother and father moved to Barcelona. And we moved to a town 30 minutes away from Barcelona. And was uh, was great for me because it was a, a little uh, town called Santa Coloma de Cervelló. And everybody in that little town were farmers. So I grew up uh, uh, around farms, especially cherries. Uh, that town produces some of the best cherries in the world. So I grew up in a farming town. Um, my father, who is a nurse, my mother, who also is a nurse, uh, they love to cook. We need to understand that cooking in Spain, you did that because you couldn't afford to go restaurants over 30 years ago. And cooking and shopping was what everyone did. So I grew up surrounded by farmers, going with the farming seasons, going to shop with my mom and dad every other day, and cooking at home every other day. So that's what little Jose was. He was a guy that saw cooking as part of everyday life at home. 
did you like school? Let's put it this way. I, <laughs> I, I, I was, uh, I have a fascination for learning. Even probably I'm not the type of a person that learns under uh, the systems that are in place today. So uh, I was a okay student. A uh, few things I love, like for example, science. I love anything that had to do with science. And I will learn on my own. The teacher will not have to tell me learn. I will go always ahead of the curve. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I stopped uh, studying when I was uh, roughly uh, uh, 15th, but um, I, w I moved to a culinary school, which is still open today, and you had to be 18th, but because it was a private school and was the first year of the school, they would take very much anybody, and I was lucky that they took me. Uh, and I went to the school, even again, I will not be a good student and I will be going to restaurants every day. Today, almost uh, 25, 30 years later, I regret that I didn't um, have a more proper formal education because I believe my life will be easier, but nonetheless, it's never too late. Uh, every, every, uh, everything I lack uh, in education-wise, uh, I cannot give excuses for anything for family. I don't think you need any. Or for excuses. economic situations, <laughs> this is the message I send always to every young person that tells me, "Should I go to school?" Like definitely yes, and 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 and, and because I regret, I I, I didn't had the the right uh, frame to 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 study. But you know, again, never too late. So over the last. 25 years I've been uh, taking every minute I have free in my life used to keep learning what I like. So. I know you're a big reader and books and my gosh, uh, you, I think uh, life is education more, more than school. But, but do, are you a typical uh, Spanish guy that loved football? Did you play a lot <laughs> of football when you were growing up? I, I I play a lot of football, even I've never been a very very soccer, good I mean. yeah. soccer. Yeah, yeah soccer in America, football yeah. for the rest of the world. Uh, but yes, uh, but what I learned is that life is too life is short, and I play everything there is to play. I play tennis, I play ping pong, I play paddle, really, which is a fascinating new tennis like game. I play basketball, I play soccer, I play. Football. I scuba dive. I uh, kite surf. Now I I I play chess. I, I you know I'm not very no good boundaries. at not very good at anything. But <laughs> but I try to 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 be even lately. I'm learning lacrosse because my daughters now are are learning. So I think life is short. Not to get a glimpse of everything there is to know. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, after school, how did you? How was your journey to becoming to actually coming to America and hmm. becoming the chef you are? What, what was your journey? So I was very lucky because very early on, um, through my process in the school, since I was 15th, I was able to work in Barcelona with some of the best chefs. Uh, one of them, Nachel, Jean-Louis Nachel. Uh, he was the best chef uh, in the 80s and 90s in Spain. He still is one of the great. He was a two-star Michelin. He, uh, he came under the wing of one of the great French chefs, Alan Chappelle. 
And when he moved to Spain uh, and he moved to Catalonia, he became instantly the best chef. So I worked with him in his restaurant in Barcelona. I worked in another restaurant called Reno, which was the tr most traditional, elegant Catalan restaurant in Barcelona at the time. In the summers, I would work under a new young chef called Ferran Adria, who had a restaurant called <laughs> El Bulli that no one knew, and where most of the time the restaurant was empty, uh, over 23, oh, okay. 24 years ago. So my journey was, uh, 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 you know, surrounded by these amazing chefs that I spent time with them that become unbelievably important so, in my life. Okay, we just have to take a little stop out at Il Bouillet because it became so famous. But what was it, A, how did you know about it? And B, why did you go there? And what was it like? And, and just spend, you know, a small yeah. amount of time on it. Destiny, I never fight destiny. I think life has always a plan for every one of us and sometimes we try to fight that plan and me I'm a guy that just goes with a plan that life has already in place for me so um, my first uh, summer I was uh, uh, 16th going to uh, 15th going to 16th I went to a little town called Rosas Rosas is a beautiful town a fishing village north of uh, Barcelona very close to France uh, and I went to work there in a fish place that was the best fish place in that part of Spain. Uh, one day, this chef, young guy called Ferran Adria, came to my restaurant to have gambas al ajillo, or what we call uh, is garlic shrimp, a very traditional tapa. Well, uh, in Rosas is where El Bulli is. And I say it's destiny because uh, the next summer, I came back uh, to work at El Bulli and to work with Ferran. Again, a chef that no one really knew. Everyone began talking about him, but he was very young. He was barely 23, 24. Was he doing traditional food at that time? At that time, and we're talking over 23, 24 years ago, already he was very cutting edge. Even he began, like everything else in life has a beginning, traditional Catalan cooking that he was modernizing. He was making the sauces lighter and the cooking time shorter, and, but maintaining the qualities of what the traditional Catalan cooking was. But obviously, by, by, uh, at that time, he was already kind of uh, slowly moving forward. He would look to France for inspiration. We would go some weekends to France to eat and come back. Uh, over Sunday, Monday, uh, we will go to Paul Bocuse, or we will go to try to go Michel Gerard, and going and coming back. And so a lot of the inspiration we were getting at the time was from France. But one day he said, no more looking to France, no more looking anywhere else. We have to be now within our own world, and we need to rediscover who we are. And if we keep looking outside, we are only going to be bringing influences from the outside. Now with what we know, let's see how we recreate our own style. And that's what Ferran did. So, you were in the Navy. You were a sailor. Yeah. Yeah. What, what stage in your life did that take? Uh, well, you, you, you have to, back in time, you had to be uh, in the military for six months to a year. And I was, I was looking forward to being in the military. A lot of people complain because, you know, uh, back, back in the days they don't pay you. They only give you the room and the food, that's it. And the trip to get to, 
to your to your destination. But me, I was looking forward. So I got in the Navy, and happens they sent me to the south of Spain. I was uh, 18th going to 19th. And for me it was great, but I wanted to be in a ship, and I knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to a, a tall ship called Juan Sebastián del Cano, which is where they train the midshipmen, the, the officers to be. And it's one of the most beautiful ships in the world. But guess what? The Navy had plans for me. They want me to be the cook of the Admiral of Spain. The Admiral? And I was like, no way. I want to go in a ship. I wanna... oh, so the Admiral wasn't on a ship. He was on land. On land. He was the big boss who <laughs> is not in a ship. And I'm like, no kidding. So anyway, but in life when you are persistent and you have very clear, a very clear north of where you want to go, you know, the first option I had, I told the Admiral himself, Sir, I love to serve you and cook for you, but my destiny is not here with you, but my destiny is serving you and Spain in a ship. And he listened to my message and he put me in a ship. And it's when I came to America first time as a sailor of the Spanish Navy. So you were Spanish? That's how you came to America, on a ship. And where did you, did you come to New York? Or? Well, we went around the world. We went Africa, South America, the Caribbean, and then we came Pensacola, Beautiful Pensacola. In the Gulf of Mexico. In the Gulf of Mexico, beautiful Florida. Uh, the town of the Five Flags. And then we came all the way to Norfolk, Virginia, and then New York. And I spent seven days in New York. And, you know, I barely go, went back to the ship. I, <laughs> I was fascinated walking in the streets of Manhattan. And I knew that when I, when I we came back uh, to Spain, uh, I knew that I had to find a way to come back to the States. So how did you do that? Well, uh, right before Olymp uh, Barcelona 92, the Olympic Games, um, was many companies uh, in Spain and especially in Catalonia that they saw an opportunity uh, to come to China and to come to America and to come anywhere. Uh, Barcelona 92 was a great way to, to, to expand horizons. So restaurants were not any different and were few small Spanish companies that they were thinking about opening in New York was three restaurants that opened in the 90s, 91, 92, and was a restaurant called El Dorado Petit that opened here in New York, and I got a visa. They used to give the E2 visas, and I got a visa to come to work here for six months. And uh, quite frankly, I was, not, I was happy with six months. I was not planning to stay any longer. But here I came, and these opportunities keep showing up, and 22, 23 years later almost, so you am. were here for 22. six months, and at the end of the six months, did you go back to Spain? No, I stay. I I began doing things for Disney. I began doing things for Westin hotels. I began. Uh, how did you? I mean, for Disney, how did you do that? Well, because I guess there was not many Spanish chefs, and and when I opened the restaurant here, when you open in New York, yeah, everybody knows. everybody knows. And I was young, but uh, you know, everyone was interested in the Spanish cooking, and always was an opportunity to do things. So here I stay, and I, opportunities kept showing up, and I kept just following the flow of life. Okay, well, we're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back and hear about your restaurants. Like what you hear so far? 
Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Welcome back. This is Chef Story with Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is none other than Chef Jose Andres, the famous chef. Time Magazine, Most Influential Person, 2011 Outstanding Chef of the James Beard Foundation. And we've just sort of hopped the pond here, and you've come from Spain to the United States. And how did you start, you know, opening your restaurants? You've had (laughs) so many, and you're all, you have 14 now. What was the first? How did you get your first? And why 14? Well, um, I'm in New York. Is uh, 1992 is September, October the restaurant I was working I had a, a need to leave because it was not working right the owners were not uh, taking care of the restaurant as they should I knew I had to do something um, so I was looking and I got the opportunity to go to Japan. I was having the opportunity to go to Chicago to work with the great Richard Melman. I got, I got these opportunities, but I had to make a decision. But before I left Manhattan, I went to work for uh, three weeks uh, with Barry Wine at the Guilty Giraffe. The many people uh, don't know, but the Guilty Giraffe was like the restaurant uh, in New York at the time very small in the sunny building uh, Barry Wine was doing all these Japanese meets America so, uh, all the sophistication of Japan but you know Matsutake mushrooms and other things so it was very lucky I saw one of the great chefs uh, at its prime before he closed and he moved to other things so anyway I was trying to decide what's next for me and I got this phone call from these people in Washington my partner Rob Wilder and friend and Roberto Alvarez, a Dominican, and I was in La Jolla at the time because again I was looking for what's next in California. In California, uh, I had these families that they kind of took me under their wing because I used to go to California to cook f- to raise money for cancer research, uh, and uh, and I met all these beautiful people in La Jolla, so they were taking care of me like if I was their son. So again, I was thinking about what's next. I get the phone call Washington. I move Washington, and uh, so I, how did they know you? I mean, how did you know Rob Wilder? And well, because they were they knew that uh, they knew my restaurant here in New York where I work. They knew that all those cooks and sous chefs and chefs left the restaurant, and they were looking where they went. They were looking for people like me because they knew they wanted to open a Spanish restaurant. Oh, and they needed cooks to chefs and chefs and they needed someone they found me through friends I'm a guy that loves to talk because I know when you meet people it's always opportunity mm-hmm. and that's life 
and they found me. I came, I met them, I liked them. And by March 1993, I moved to Washington and I never looked back. We opened Haleo around April 1993. Uh, I, I, I was the, the head chef. My executive chef was a great woman, it's always a great woman in my life, Anne Cashin, who still is, is one of the, the, is a great person, a great chef. She still has restaurants in Washington, D.C., and she does many other things. And, and uh, I was maybe not ready to be head chef. I was 23. Uh, 23? 23, yeah. and, and, but I learned a lot from her. I, I was a great cook, excellent cook, which is not the same as being an excellent chef or excellent organizer, uh, especially when you're so young. Um, but anyway, it was very having her next to me and many other people, my partners, and use uh, one one day at a time. We opened Haleo and then everything else. What was the menu like company. when you first, at 23? Well, uh, is the, the menu, every restaurant I always believe is a living creature. Restaurants are not are things that has feelings, is, and the feelings are, you have to listen to the walls, to the food, to the ingredients, to the wine, to, to, to the guests and the workers and the co-workers. And the menu was what I believe was the Spanish, what the Spanish cooking was supposed to be. Everyone was telling me that small portions or tapas uh, uh, were the way to go, but everyone wanted me to do big portions. So they wanted to call it tapas, but they want bigger portions. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not the way. If we are going to call it tapas, it's going to be small. If we call it tapas, we're going to make sure that people have many. And they're going to do a big celebration every time they come to the restaurant. And everyone told me, if you don't do big portions, you're not going to be successful in the meat and potatoes kind of Washington, D.C. of 1993. That's true. Wow. But I, I had I got feeling that that was not the way. Uh, I love meat and potatoes, but it's boring if you do it every day. Uh, tapas, sharing, small dishes, testing five, ten different things in one meal is more fun. It's like the rainbow full of colors. Mm-hmm. So, so it was very simple. Uh, white and black, kind of gray, which to me is the meat and potatoes type of restaurant, or the rainbow which tapas is all about, and Spanish cooking, and the Spanish way of living is all about. And you know, we were very blessed because we were successful from day one, and we opened in a very bad neighborhood. One of my first guests was Senator Patrick Moynihan. Really? Uh, uh, one of the most legendary, beloved senators, even being a Democrat, even beloved by by many Republicans. So it's no, no many types like that. Uh, sometimes in Washington, and he was one of my first guests, and he told me one day, uh, you know, Jose, uh, uh, if you work hard, America will always give you opportunity, America will always love you back, so we're very happy you're here with us. Oh, um, what a I, I, I follow I follow that to heart, and, and here we are, uh, almost 20 years later. We are about to celebrate 20 year anniversary of Jaleo, the, the the, the, my right. Spanish restaurant. Your Spanish restaurant. So now, 14 restaurants later. Yep. You have the Bazaar in LA, which is the and hottest. And Miami. And Miami. But it's the hottest restaurant in LA, I can attest to that. Four stars in the New York uh, LA Times. Yeah. Excuse me, LA Times. <laughs> um, and uh, what was that? 
what was that like getting four stars from the LA Times Oof. and being outstanding um, James uh, Beard chef and having all those accolades? Yeah. What uh, was that year like? The the critic uh, at the LA Times, uh, Irene Birbilla, uh, gave us four stars. Uh, I will thank her forever, even that's a blessing, but also it's kind of a curse. Once you get four stars, it's, it's, it's very hard to, because you can only go down. Uh, I believe we got four stars because we were able to serve a very high quality of food in a very fun, festive environment and doing it at a very, very high level. Um, 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 kind of funny, I had already three, four successful restaurants in Washington, already kind of being James Beard Award winner, all those things. But all of a sudden, four stars kind of put you in the map. This happened the Wednesday before the Oscars. And when the Oscars are happening, everybody around the world is in LA. So all of a sudden, we were not only news in LA, we were news all around, across America, but we were news all across the world. Kind of the news where the first Oscar has been given to chef because getting four stars doesn't happen every day. Again, this is humble because it means, and that's the conversation I have with my team. Guys, we cannot believe we are worth four stars. Uh, but nonetheless, now we have to work even harder to deserve every one of those stars. And that's what we've done ever since. And that's what we do. We don't work in what we got yesterday. We work to deserve what we would maybe get in tomorrow. You have to wake up every day use working hard to deserve sometimes the praise you get because again anything in cooking especially everything you do today uh, is forgotten uh, so every day you have to earn yeah. your your money um, so you know you've been chosen as one of times most influential people and uh, if you read the article it was spectacular uh, Tony Bourdain wrote it and it was about him being in Haiti and really you know, no air conditioning, this is after the earthquake, feeling sorry for himself that he's, he's kind of camping out in a hotel room, and uh, late at night he goes down to the bar and he hears a familiar laugh, and it's you in the bar. What were you doing in Haiti? And it was incredibly Im impressive for Time Magazine to choose you as a, one of the most influential people. Well, I, I, I was very... Um very happy by being included. Not so much for me to be in time, but the meaning for the culinary uh, profession. I, I believe food is an important issue. Food is beyond sharing a great bottle of champagne or a great uh, uh, dish with friends in a fancy restaurant. Food is so much more powerful than that. And I think to be honored by time sends precisely that message. I do believe that my profession, and I don't mean only chefs, but everybody that makes, uh, that is part of the of the profession of feeding people, which takes farmers and takes sommeliers and takes food critics and takes uh, 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 cooking school owners and mm. takes so many people. Uh, uh, um, I believe we have uh, uh, to take care of feeding everybody, feeding the world creating jobs, making sure that America is healthy and is not obese, making sure that America and the world is not hungry. And this takes a lot of 
encourage and allow people. And one person alone cannot make it happen. Everyone is going to have to contribute. But what I know is that I may be feeding the few, but I think it's our responsibility to make sure that we are feeding also the many. So what are you doing specifically in Haiti? In, in Haiti, I went right after the earthquake. I've been there more than eight, nine times by now. I've been spending a lot of my free time there with permission of my wife and my kids. And what I've been doing is learning. Uh, I don't like to take any praise for what I'm doing yet because I believe in order to help, you have to learn to know how you can help. So what I've been doing is spending a lot of time in the mountains, sometimes sleeping under the stars, and I create organization uh, with $50,000. My wife and I got from a foundation the, an award I received, the Bilsec uh, uh, Prize for the Arts. So I didn't put the money in my pocket. I created Wall Central Kitchen. And Wall Central Kitchen is simple. I'm trying to change the life of people through the power of food. That's a big idea. How I'm doing this? Okay, we are building a canteen in a place called Fonberret, very near the frontier with the Dominican Republic. And that canteen is going to be feeding 100 kids in the middle of nowhere. How I'm going to be feeding the kids? A, using sustainable cook stoves so people stop using charcoal. B, building a little chicken farm that the chickens can produce uh, eggs and can produce money by selling the chickens in the, in the, in the near markets. So these can, create, uh, can generate income so we can keep buying food for the kids and we can pay the women, sometimes the mothers, that are spending time feeding the kids. So this is one project. We may be investing in a strawberry farm. They have the, the strawberries, but they don't have the mechanism to bring them to Port-au-Prince. So the strawberries in, in Port-au-Prince are from America or from France, which is okay. But it's not very sad that these women are producing beautiful strawberries, but because they don't have uh, the, the, transportation, the transportation or distribution or the phone or the marketing or the accounting, they don't sell them. So it's very great ways to invest in people to make them successful on their own. So World Central Kitchen is going to be there to find ways to help. to help people through the power of food. And I have different, different, different uh, things like we have a bakery in an orphanage that this is supposed to be up and running hopefully all of this for fifty thousand dollars well we are now raising more money you're raising uh, more money but yeah. again i'm a brand new uh, you're going to hear more about world central kitchen we will need a lot of volunteers we will need a lot of cash but the cash i'm going to be asking people to donate is not going to be a donation it's going to be an investment and when you start thinking as an ngo that the new way is not donating anything anymore, but investing in the well-being of people, I think the world will be better. And that's what World Central Kitchen is going to be doing in Haiti and hopefully in many other countries around the world. How did you, you know, I know that you're in Washington, D.C. that gives you a lot of um, uh, a lot of access to the American government, but it seems like you're in the White House, you're in the State Department. How, how did you hook up with all those people? Well, when you are in Washington, that's what you do. Again, I always follow the flow of life. And life takes me to fascinating places. And I always have fascinating opportunities to, to, to help. So that's what I do. Did they walk in your restaurant? And then you said, you said, oh, 
I, I'm happy to help out. And if, they just come in and say, hey, would you come and cook for us? Oh, 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 they come in the restaurant, oh, I knock in the door. Where there I see opportunity, why not? We can keep talking about that after. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to take a break here, and in a minute we're going to come back and continue with Chef Jose Andres. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to Chef Story. And today we're coming to you from the International Culinary Center, where I am interviewing our brand new Dean of Spanish Studies, Chef Jose Andres. Uh, we just kicked off the inaugural luncheon for our new Spanish Studies program, and um, I wanted to ask Jose. I think he's traded his hat or his toque. Uh, from being a chef to being an absolute missionary about uh, the products of Spain, so uh, let's let's delve into that a little bit. You're, you've got 14 restaurants. You're working in Haiti. Why now a Spanish school? Well, um, let me put it this way: I already probably have enough projects for the next 30, 40 years of my life. I'll say. <laughs> so the great thing is that I don't have to think about any new projects. Mm -hmm. I have a great restaurant. I have a Mexican restaurant. I have a Chinese restaurant. I have different restaurants because it's a great way for me and my team to learn. And I believe also I have something to bring to the table. Why? Because I know about those cookings. I've been traveling through China, through Greece, through Turkey, through Mexico. So restaurants for me, like if I was a book writer are my way to express what I know about those countries, are a way for me to tell a story. At the end, a chef is a storyteller through the power of the food and the dishes the chef cooks. So now all this is done. I have my non-profits in Washington that I'm the chairman emeritus of DC Central Kitchen, an amazing organization that we uh, teach people how to cook. We clean them, we take them from the street, and then we put them after training uh, uh, working in local restaurants. Fascinating program. Now we have Old Central Kitchen where I'm doing the same, trying to do the same in Haiti and other parts around the world. Wow, uh, I'm covered. I even have my American restaurant. Um, that's my little contribution to a country that has given me so much. So we open America Eats, the history of America through a restaurant. All this is happening. I'm very happy. I'm very honored. I'm very. But then is the next level. Spain is really at my heart because I don't have to think hard about Spain. It's, it's who I am, it's where I come from, it's what I know, it's what is in my blood. I did a TV show made in Spain that I was taking America and people around the world because the show is in more than 30 countries now, telling the world what Spain is. Traveling through Spain, but also cooking at my home where it could be anywhere in the world. So that's done. But what's next? Well, I have now four or five Spanish restaurants. And I see that the restaurant is not sometimes the place to educate. And yes, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. Every one of my restaurants, when I get people, I have to train them. But I see the need of getting people that they have a higher level of training. 
on knowing the Spanish history, of knowing the Spanish, of knowing the Spanish ingredients, of knowing the Spanish techniques. I think still everyone thinks they know Spanish, but no one really knows Spanish cooking. So it's a great opportunity to open the door to thousands, to hopefully hundreds of thousands of, 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 of people, of Americans, of young Americans, that they want to have a new, a new thing to do in life. So here, partnering with you, partnering with this great school, let's use the power of education to create a bridge between Spain and America and eventually between uh, Spain, America and from America to the world to start writing a new chapter on what Spanish cooking is. And we have to do this now by the avant-garde, which is important that people eventually will know it, what some people unfortunately call molecular, but to start teaching about what the basics of Spanish cooking are, what a, an alioli sauce is, what a romesco sauce is, where is the history of Spanish cooking, what Greece and the Romans has to do with Spain, what the Arabs and the Jewish have to do with Spain. So if we start telling people that, they will have a very amazing uh, understanding of what Spanish cooking is all about. How, how is Spanish cooking different from French or Italian? I mean, and I'm talking Southern French. You all use tomatoes, you know, you all use garlic, you all have the same kind of ingredients. What would you say is the, the differentiating uh, point of Spanish cuisine? Obviously Spain is at the heart of what we understand as Mediterranean, but it's so fascinating, right? You can have one ingredient, something like tomato, and in Spain, France, and Italy, that tomato can be treated in so many different ways. And this is what is fascinating about our profession, that only one ingredient can be hundreds of dishes in different parts of the world. When you put two, two ingredients, then it's thousands of dishes. And if you put three, then it's hundreds of thousands. So, so the formula just grows exponentially. Mm. So tomato in Spain, Tomato in Italy can be this amazing spaghetti pomodoro. Mm -hmm. uh, in France can be an amazing ratatouille if mm. you will use tomato in that particular recipe. In Spain can be a fascinating gazpacho. Gazpacho, which is this fascinating soup that more than a soup, conceptually, is a salad in a bowl. Wow. So one humble tomato that actually doesn't even belong to Europe, that came from Mexico, that came from America back in the 15th century, arrives to Spain, then arrives to the rest of Europe and then to the rest of the world and becomes different things. The difference between Spain and Italy and, 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 and France is that it's not any different. It just happens that Ita cooking is Italian, France is French and Spanish is Spanish. At the end, everyone has its own characteristics. Uh, in Spain, we love more olive oil, but the truth is that we, are, we love olive oil more in the southern part of Spain. In the northern part of Spain, we use more butter or fats. Uh, even things are changing. So the fascinating thing is that I cannot tell you what the differences are. It's only for everyone to understand that the Spanish cooking is very distinctive and the recipes are very different from anything else we know about European cooking. So what are you hoping that young Americans will learn about Spanish cooking? What, what I think they will, will learn about the Spanish cooking is that uh, uh, 
today we are uh, uh, when we go to a supermarket we get hundreds of ingredients and different herbs and different salts and different oils and sometimes because we have uh, the option and the access so, to so many ingredients it seems is that unbelievable need of putting as many ingredients as we can in one plate because seems that that shows you how powerful you are because you have the power to buy and you have the knowledge to use them and so if we can put 20 ingredients in a plate you're going to be so much better I do believe one of the things the Spanish cooking is going to be bringing to the table is that a humble garlic a humble olive oil and a simple tomato can create a simple dish that sometimes if you make a traditional paella the most iconic rice dish in the world with permission to risotto, with permission of Italian risotto, that if you make a humble paella, a good stock out of the fish heads, and a simple sofrito, that simple tomato sauce, sometimes with addition of green pepper, sometimes with addition of, of garlic, can create a unique dish. So here we are going to be learning that in Spanish cooking, usually less is more. That, I think, will be the, the, the most amazing contribution of Spanish cooking to America and, 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 to, and, to, and to the new students, hopefully, that will join me in this crusade of bringing Spanish cooking not only to America, but to many other countries around the world. How much of Spanish cooking today, I know a lot of people think it's all this modern avant-garde cooking. Where does that place in your course? Is that Spanish cooking? Um, of sure is Spanish cooking. Well, what many people know as molecular cooking is what we call in Spain avant-garde. And I do believe that Spain was very lucky because we Spain is next to France. We only have the Pyrenees as what separates us from, from the French. And, and by the proximity of Spain to France, uh, we were lucky because we had all these influence so near us. So everything happened really in Spain initially, in Catalonia and in the Basque country. And it's a reason why. Uh, uh, um, both regions uh, are next to France and they always historic, uh, historically they had very easy access to France. So the big revolutions in Spanish cooking really happened in those two amazing regions. And that's why they are the most powerful culinary regions in Spain, with permission of, of every other region. So, so being, being next to, to France gave us this amazing potential of taking, um, uh, 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 with everything that happened uh, with Nouvelle Cuisine in France, with all the influence of obviously the Fernand Poins very early on, but then the Paul Bocuse, the Michel Gerards, uh, blah blah blah, then with ending with the Ducas and the Robuchons, and wow, uh, it's one moment that when France becomes such a big powerful influence, um, all the good things ended in Spain. Many other countries, but Spain is the one that probably received the, the best. And then we began having great minds like. Arsac, the legendary Spanish Basque chef, with all his friends surrounding him. Then uh, all the Catalan cooking way before Ferran Adrià that happened 
around Barcelona that was many chefs that are no, unknown but that they become very very powerful in the 60s 70s then Ferran Adria shows up it was natural that Ferran Adria was going to be showing up he was already uh, uh, being influenced by so many people in France and then in Spain so avant-garde cooking is in Spain happened only because we had a very powerful traditional cooking and because the proximity to France so what I will tell everybody is in our course you will learn avant-garde Spanish cooking you will learn the cooking that Spain is known for today but before students get to the point we're going to make sure that they learn the basics because without the basics you will not be a successful avant-garde cook ever if you want to be modern that's awesome but before you learn modern you need to understand the basics and the basics is everything it's what we call traditional cooking but I don't believe it's even traditional. Many of the things, even in France, in Italy, that are called traditional are unbelievably modern. So again, uh, you need to learn the basics. You need to learn the traditions. You need to learn the history. And then when you are prepared at the level, then you can be taking on esferifications on airs and on foams. I, actually, this course is so imbued not just in the in the cooking but in the culture of Spain that if you don't speak Spanish there'll be total immersion Spanish language for you because you're going to wind up in Spain you can't do this course without going to Spain and tasting the products and so it's about language it's about culture it's about uh, putting food in its context and authenticity so we're getting ready to close the interview, unfortunately, but I know you have three beautiful daughters. Do you want them to be chefs? Well, uh, Carlota, Inés, and Lucia, and obviously my wife, Patricia. I'm sure I want them to be chefs. They all have more than one chef jacket. And recently they were with me at the White House. We were invited by Mrs. Obama and, and the White House to cook at the G8. And uh, while um, the boys... Uh, they, they were at uh, the um, uh, Camp David. Uh, the boys, uh, meaning the presidents, the yeah. G8s. <laughs> I, I was honored to cook for the first ladies of the G8. And my daughters came with all my team, and we cook a historical American menu. And I was very honored. And, and so, so I always bring my daughters to events like that, that hopefully. Uh, and will influence them one day to cook or at the very least for them to understand the power of food to change the world so yes I'm very, I hope they will be cooks but if they are not cooks I know that they will always uh, take food uh, with them anywhere they go I saw and I was down at the State Department last week and saw you honored by the State Department to be a culinary ambassador what does that mean? I mean, you're, you're, you are here as a missionary uh, in the school trying to bring Spanish cuisine. But as you just said, you were invited by Michelle Obama to cook American food in the White House. Are you the ultimate American immigrant? Well, I don't know if I'm the ultimate American immigrant. I know I'm very lucky that America gave me the opportunity to join America. Let's put it this way. But... When I go Haiti and I'm representing the State Department and Mrs. Clinton because I am the ambassador of the Alliance of Clean Cookstoves, that I don't see that as an honor. I see that as a responsibility. People probably will say, but Jose, why do you do so many things? I believe life is about synergies. 
only we need to be teaching people, especially the young people, especially hopefully we'll do this in the school, that if you only take some time to think about anything, you will see that everything you do in life can have many ramifications, that you can be influencing many other people and helping many other people. Synergy probably is key. So hopefully we will teach people here through the course, at the same time they learn Spanish cooking, how synergies can make everyone better, but more important, can make everybody surrounding you better. So synergy will be key for the future of humankind. Hopefully food and synergy can really be, I believe, can change the world. Only we need to learn how to do it. You may have thought that Jose Andres was just, not just a chef, but a chef. But I think you'll agree he's also equal part missionary. Thanks, Jose, for being with us today. Thank you, Dorothy. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. And see you next time. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, Chef Story. And I want to thank our producers, Jack Inslee and Joe Sevier and Heidi Tickle. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.